the American Male Spouse. I'm your host, Elizabeth Smith. Our guest this week is Sarah. We got a chance to sit down and talk about what it was like to pursue an advanced degree. Sarah has her master's in public policy, and she currently works in higher education. We talk about what it was like to have these goals, know what she wanted to do, and also be looking at a life as a military spouse and the way that she made that work. And we also hit on something that I think is especially relevant to all of us, and that is homesickness and the realities of missing your parents, missing your siblings, missing out on things because of the fact that military life takes us away from a lot of that. So I'm really thankful to Sarah for her openness and honesty when it comes to the feelings of homesickness and how she's dealt with that. There's a lot to learn and a lot to relate to on this episode, so let's get started. Hi, my name is Sarah. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, where I lived until I got married. I currently work in higher ed research and I like to read and bake and go to museums and all that girly stuff. Nice. And you met in New York? Yes. So my husband went to college with my brother-in-law and they were set up. We were set up on a blind date by my sister. Oh, wow. It was like a Pride and Prejudice thing. She wanted us to be like sisters married to best friends. (laughs) So she set us up and then carefully guided our entire relationship until we got married. So yeah, it's great. And my husband is the Mr. Darcy in that mix. So, you know, pretty lucky for me. That's awesome. That's so sweet. I love it. And so tell me a little bit more about the work that you do now. I'm currently working in higher ed research as a program evaluation manager, and that's kind of just working in between program implementation and program evaluation. So I do a lot of surveys and reports and data cleaning and stuff like that. Okay, so I am going to ask you to dumb that down for me even further. So, (laughs) so like, what kind of surveys? Who are you surveying? What kind of what are you learning about while you're doing that? Yeah, so we have a program that helps faculty in higher ed be more effective and equitable instructors. Mm. And then we gather um, information on grades and student outcomes and stuff like that and analyze it and just basically check to see how well our programs are, are doing and how effective they are and use that research to help drive student success. That's cool. So what kind of things are, are there any things that are surprising, surprisingly effective? It's a whole course. I didn't design it. So okay. <laughs> um, I don't want to speak to the course builders, sure. um, but a lot of it is stuff that you would think is like super simple, just like, you know, explaining the syllabus in more detail mm-hmm. or, you know, having better forums for students to ask questions because they don't always feel comfortable asking questions and just being more of a facilitator in a classroom instead of just like a lecturer. Okay. Yeah, that, I could see that being very relevant to my experience hearing you say it now. Yeah, I think those classes were more pleasant, if nothing else. And so you have a master's degree, right? Mm-hmm. In, and what's your degree in? My degree is in public administration and public policy. Okay. And it, so is what you're doing now pretty well aligned with what you were hoping to do when you were studying that? 
Yes, it's kind of interesting because I did my undergrad in um, international business in German, and that led me into working in student exchange, which is in the public sector. So then I was like, oh, I'm going to go get my master's in public policy. My current job is actually back in the private sector, but it's using all the skills that I learned in my master's degree. So public policy is a great degree if you want to work for a startup or a nonprofit or a chamber of commerce. It's a really flexible degree. It's not just meant for government. Yeah. And I would agree with that based on what I've been, I have a lot of interest in public policy. So I've Mm -hmm. actually selfishly been, I think I told you that before, you know, this is (laughs) a little bit selfish in my interest about all of this, but I think in general, it's very fascinating. So tell me more. I think from, again, my own experiences, I am not good at explaining public policy, mm-hmm. even like public affairs sort of. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through sort of like this, the spirit of a public policy degree and sort of like what your, what the goal is? And like you said, I yeah. mean, I know that there's private sector, public sector, nonprofit, like it's, it's broad, but. So that's actually something that was something that I learned in my classes that I'd never really known about before was the cycle of policy creation and program evaluation. It's something that I think the average person really doesn't know about. And it's sort of the foundation of how our government works, which Mm -hmm. is kind of odd that it's something that most people aren't aware of. Yeah. So it's like a multi-step program. Eugene Bardock, like he's the guy who came up with the eight step like policy path that you know is mostly studied and used right now so basically you find identify a problem you analyze the problem and the factors of the problem and then you do research around the factors of the problem so you're not just looking at the issue but what's causing the issue and then you try to come up with intervention to change the outcomes to solve the problem um, you'll come up with a couple of different possibilities. And then you're going to do an analysis of those options and weigh, basically weigh the pros and cons, see how expensive this would be, how difficult would it be to implement? Is it feasible? You know, Are there groups that would be harmed? What are the externalities of this option? And then based on that analysis, you take a look at which one looks like it's going to work best. And then if you go forward with it, you implement it. And then once you implement it, you kind of start the entire process again in an ideal world. You start collecting data on what's happening. What are the new outcomes? Where are the gaps between the actual outcomes and what you want it to happen? And then you go back in and you start reanalyzing the problem. And the idea of program evaluation is that it's just a never-ending cycle to get you to your ideal point. But often in public policy, especially in government, because there isn't unlimited funding and this isn't like sexy work, it's very um, nitty gritty, you do round one and just leave it. And it may or may not actually work, which is how you end up with a lot of programs, especially in education and stuff that sound really great, but the outcomes might not actually be meeting the targets at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that you mentioned it, but that that side of it, the unintended harm, the things that don't necessarily manifest until you're Mm -hmm. putting it in the real world are oftentimes, again, as, as a layman, as certainly not the person who can speak as an expert on this, but I I feel like you see a lot of that being 
the major pain point where, yes, I believe oftentimes laws are put in place with good intentions, but those after effects that are not revisited, sometimes that's painful. Do you feel like working in the private sector, is there more opportunity for that, like revisiting and kind of continuing to perfect things? Yes. So work right now where I work is sort of a private sector startup. So my entire team is dedicated to constant improvement, which is something that a lot of um, public sector organizations, be them, you know, NGOs or, you know, local state or city councils or governments, you know, don't have the infrastructure or the manpower to actually do. So there's definitely a lot of room for private sector work in program management and even like policy creation. That's kind of a complicated (laughs) question as to, you know, the private sector always says, oh, we have the money and we have the bandwidth, but the public sector is, you know, there's some hesitancy on how close those two sectors should work. Um, You know, you don't want, there's always the idea that, you know, someone's going to pay someone off to get the, you know, program that they want in place, even Mm -hmm. if it's not the greatest, just for the benefit of their company. Right. That makes sense. Um, I had a question. I was just going to ask you about that too. Oh, I'm curious about how, if you know, um, when it comes to like government policy Mm -hmm. and typically all of this research that goes into it and what, what is initially proposed as how things Mm -hmm. should be, how much of like the integrity of that stays in place by the time it gets to, you know, like a vote, for instance, if Mm -hmm. it's being voted on, like how much of that is sort of, I don't know, bastardized for lack of a better word by, like you said, politics and, and particular interests and that kind of thing. I think it really depends on what level of government you're looking at. Mm -hmm. One thing that I have really learned and seen is that local government, small, you know, city councils and stuff is where the majority of things are happening that are going to impact your life. And that's where there can be a little bit more integrity because those are smaller, smaller teams who are not dealing with the same level of advocacy in DC and lobbying as something on a federal level is. So I think it's very dependent on the level of government that a situation is happening at and that the program is being implemented at. I would say probably the smaller and the more local you go, the more um, streamlined and the less hands are going to be in the issue. And, you know, maybe the more open the process is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so as most of our listeners and myself and you as military spouses, Mm -hmm. I know for me, like I'm so guilty of not familiarizing myself with the local leaders in our, because in my mind, it tends to be, if I'm voting for you, I'm probably not even here by the time you're elected or, you know, whatever the, whatever the specific circumstances, I think that it's just sort of one of the last things that, that I really focus on, but you know, from what you're saying, I feel like probably a lot of the things that really impact us in the town are, are those local leaders. And so what do you know about, like, whether it's something you do or just kind of from your knowledge, like, what should we be doing? You know, how should we mm-hmm. be plugging in there? And like, how does that really impact us? That is a really interesting question. Just today, I got an email from Charleston County Council of Government. I don't know how they know 
where I live or have my email address um, to fill out a survey about um, food deserts in Charleston and some ideas that they have to try to, you know, make healthy food and grocery stores more accessible. And I think there's a very, there's a couple of really like simple places that you can start. Um, look up your chamber of commerce that's local. Look up the city council. Those are sort of the entry point into whatever city or town you're in, depending on the size of the place that you're in. It might be um, more complicated or easier to get that information. I don't vote in South Carolina where I live, but I do like to be very up to date on what is going on and um, the different issues that are happening. I'm very interested in public transportation. I wrote a paper about the bus system in Charleston, which is a little bit of a disaster. You yeah. can publish that publicly because it is a disaster. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of saying that. Um, I think it's important to just know what's going on. Even if you're only going to be there for two years, you're not going to be able to change anything. But just understanding the place you're in and the people there and the struggles that it has and why it's the way it is will probably give you a different outlook and also maybe help you have more sympathy for the frustrations that we have coming in as military spouses and being like, this is different or frustrating and and not kind of wanting to dig in and understand the local population or why things are the way that they are. That's such a good point. And I think that obviously something that we lament pretty regularly on here is that there is a struggle as a military spouse for people to understand our perspective. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, that doesn't preclude us from learning about theirs. You know, when we move in, when we're living off base and our next door neighbor has lived here for 25 years, their idea of our lifestyle is probably wildly misunderstood. But at the same time, I think that there's a duty to have some understanding of their life too. If we want them to care about us, if they want, if we're hopeful that they'll, you know, look up for us when our husband's deployed and that kind of thing, I think you're right. That kind of understanding their, their pain points and what, what matters to the community is a big deal. And and something that I'm always just fascinated by and often surprised by and something I don't think necessarily gets a lot of attention on a bigger scale. Like, you know, you talked about transportation, like mm-hmm. how much policy impacts so many things and, you know, like transportation, if it's terrible and if you have low income families that don't have a vehicle and can't get the transportation and then their kids not at school And then, you know, and it's like, that's, that all adds up. And then Mm -hmm. why are our graduation so, our graduation rates so low? Because the bus drops kids off two miles away or, you know, like, because they can't afford the the bus fare or whatever. So that's kind of a total tangent, but just, I said, I'm, it interests me so much, the work that you do. And I think it's so cool the everything that goes into all of that, because I do Mm -hmm. think, especially like I said, like on a, on a federal level, it very much seems like such and such a senator sat at his desk and got this idea and took it to work and then he and his friends voted on it or whatever. And there's just so much that goes into it that that's all the, like you said, all the nitty gritty work that you guys are doing that is, that's really cool stuff. And is this your first job since getting your master's? Yes. So I was in my old job while I started my master's back in New York and I started my master's in New York. And then I um, did my last year remote in Charleston while working 
like a contract job while job hunting for a more permanent um, spot. Okay. So you knew like you were engaged slash married, like mm-hmm. when you made the decision to start getting your master's, is that right? I, we were dating. So we were long distance for five years while I kind of got my life together. We met when I was 21 and I was like, I am not ready to be a military spouse or do anything. I don't know any, I don't even know what I want to do. So we had kind of a long and slow, long distance dating, which was great because I mean, he deployed twice during that time and he was traveling constantly and it gave me time to figure out what I wanted to do. So I kind of knew that's where our relationship was going and I knew I wanted the master. So I figured start it sooner rather than later. So I wouldn't have to worry about it. And then we got engaged during my first semester. Okay. So, you know, kind of based on like the stigmas of in realities, you know, of military spouse employment, did you have any fears about that when it came to going to get a master's degree in terms of like worrying about getting a job in the field that you're going and studying? Yes and no. I definitely think I was a little bit like confident and cocky that, oh, if I already have my master's degree, it'll be fine. Because I do know that one problem that a lot of military spouses face is that um, if they get married younger before they sort of have an established career path, that's when it's incredibly difficult for them to start because sometimes you need that initial experience to be a jumping off point. And I already had almost four years of professional experience. So I was like, oh, it's going to be easy for me. Um, it, It wasn't easy. But it was not as um, difficult as I had feared, if that made sense. It it took a while to find the right position. Like I said, I took a contract job while I was searching for my next more permanent move. So, yeah, I did job hunt for almost a year, but I was also being a little bit more selective and looking for the right position instead of just the first position that would hire me. Sure. And do you know if this is something that you'd be able to take with you in the event of a PCS or will you have to look again? It depends on where the PCS is. We're supposed to be PCSing sometime at the end of this year or next year. So of course I am eager to know where that is because depending on where it is, I either will or will not be able to take my job with me. So okay. hopefully, hopefully this will be something that I can take with me for a while. Sure. And are you, you're not working remotely at all right now, or are you like with, I am working okay. remotely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My so company f- is based on the Eastern, like my team is on the Eastern seaboard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you feel like in general, this lifestyle is a, how big of a hurdle do you feel like it is for spouses to pursue higher education? I think it takes a lot of planning and really knowing what it is that you want to do. I feel specifically called to what I'm doing the way that I think my husband feels called to what he's doing. So because of that, and because I know there are like additional challenges, I have been extra careful to plan strategically. Like I'm thinking of maybe getting an EDD in the future. So I have already like found programs that all the bases that we might PCS to. So what is, like, I'm sorry, can you explain what an EDD is? Um, it's a doctorate of education. Okay. Yeah. And specifically I'm looking for education policy. So I've already started 
looking at programs in all of the different um, places that we might PCS and trying to make connections with organizations there and people who might be helpful and sort of network, even though I don't know where that's going to be. And even though I might never end up there just because I, I want to have the that groundwork done now. So I think that um, when it comes to spouses and higher ed, the it's always going to take a lot of patience and sort of the easiest road might not be the best road. I know a lot of people want the fully online program or the really cheap program or the program in a year. But sometimes if it's too good to be true, it might not like really be the best move for your education. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of hurdles, but I think pursuing higher ed is always going to take a lot of patience and hard work, whether or not you're a military spouse. So it kind of depends on how much time and energy you're willing to dedicate yourself to it. And of course, the understanding that it might come with some additional separations from your spouse, you know, which some people aren't willing to do, which I understand. Sure. And you mentioned that, you know, the passion that you feel like your husband has for his job is what you feel for yours. To be honest with you, that's sort of a fear of mine. And I know that sounds kind of backwards in a way, but it's a fear in the sense that um, the idea of like finding something I'm passionate about that isn't remote or transferable, you know, whatever the case is, like, because the reality at the end of the day is that his job wins out, you know, for sure there's a better word for that. But I think that that's something for me that's sort of scary about pursuing Mm-hmm. my master's degree is okay here's this thing I'm really passionate about here's what I really want to do with it and I mean it's, it's it's broad broad enough hopefully that wherever we are that could be doable but I think that there's something about being okay with the change and everything and, and maybe I'm sure that's something of a defense mechanism but that having you know an equal passion for that sort of thing when, when the odds are that you'll be the one who has to sacrifice when it comes down to it based on the laws of the government and yeah. <laughs> all that good stuff. It, it is hard to look at it. My husband and I very much have in our home the idea of it's just a job, mm-hmm. which I which I know isn't true, right? Obviously, because when they tell us to move, we're going to move. But I think that um, we try not to give it more power over our lives than it needs to. And I am confident that I can, if we PCS, that I can find a job. And I mean, my husband's also made sacrifices for me. Our PCS list is not what it would be if he was single or if he was married to someone else. We've specifically requested and chosen places and moved his career into a space that's going to work best for me. So yeah, he... I have sacrificed for him, but he's also sacrificed some things for me. I mean, we're not going to Alaska. That's just not, <laughs> I, that's just not going to happen for us. <laughs> yeah. That's my, you that's know, actually um, my, my single. And that's, that's what he wanted. You know, that yeah. would have been his first choice, but we decided that, you know, that wasn't going to work for me. Right. Yeah. That's kind of, that's one of my very few, it's a short list of please, please, please don't ever make me go there places. And that is, <laughs> that is on mine as well. <laughs> I visited on a TDY once and I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. He grew up in the military and he lived in Alaska as a kid and he, he loved it. And he has a very like romantic um, idea of Mm -hmm. it and I think would love to go back. But you know, he realized that for the life that 
we have and the goals that we have, that that's just not going to be in the cards for right now. Right. And to be fair, there are different parts of Alaska and some parts I think are are a lot better than others, but yes. And I think the same that my husband has done the same as well. And it's something that I, I definitely think if he didn't have a wife and kids, his career would look really different where he's been would probably look different. What he's doing now would probably look different. And I think that that is something that really helps keep us going. That helps keep me going that I see him making the the best choices for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's a place that I'm working on getting to now because having done this for like seven years and we have two kids, it feels like a big leap to do the, to be the one kind of asking for more of the sacrifice just because of the nature of, like you said, like it's a job, but again, like, I think even when you add kids to it, it's like, well, you're not even in the state for the next two weeks. So, so obviously I'm going to do dinner and pick up and bedtime and all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's a shift. And so I think those are hurdles that, that I see, especially like, I think it's when you talk about the way that you made those decisions early on and the path that you set out for yourself, I think that that's so admirable because it's true that from where I'm sitting, it, it only gets harder. And I think those barriers just get a little bit taller as you add more to it. So I think it's, it's really awesome. The perspective that you guys have. And did you, did you always know that this was kind of the path that you wanted? Did you kind of, did you adjust anything when you saw things moving the way that you did with, with your now husband, were you always up for this career and everything? I don't, I don't know if I'm up for it now, honestly. (laughs) Um, No, I, I think that a lot of what you're talking about is so true. And I think that it, the one thing that really set me up for success was that we waited a long time to get married, which not everybody does. Um, We dated long distance for five years, which was hard, Mm -hmm. but that set me up and prepared me for the life that I have now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the phrase that, you know, what you're getting into, like I spent five years getting to know what I was going to get into. Mm -hmm. I didn't come from a military family and, um, it was, it was very scary for Mm -hmm. me. And honestly, I didn't know much about the military and I was not, I don't want to say anti-military, but I, you know, did not have a interest in military or war or anything. And that really kind of turned me off in general. So it took a while to really learn what he did and what the military is and what his place in that, you know, machine is and what my place would be in his life. Um, so we spent a long time learning together and we have very similar end goals. Like, I think we both want to be in the same place when we're 50, right? Which is why, mm-hmm. despite the differences that we have now, you know, we decided to get married. I'm like, this is the person that I want to build my life with because I know we want to end up in the same place, even though we started in very different places. So, you know, definitely um, I thought that I was going to live and die in New York and never live anywhere else. And the military was like the furthest thing from my mind. I wouldn't even say like I was actively like, I don't want to marry military. I don't think I ever thought I would meet someone in the military. I never had 
you know, really right. before I met my husband. So it just wasn't, it just wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. So how'd your parents feel then? They ended up with two, two daughters married to the military, right? Having No, my, so they went to college together oh, okay. and they both did, I want to say poli sci or government or something like that. And then my brother-in-law became a lawyer and my husband did ROTC Got it. and okay. tested to be a pilot and then okay you know, became okay. a pilot. So, so you're still, you're still the, the lone military representative. Yes. I am the lone <laughs> military representative. I am the lone, um, not in the tri-state area, um, representative. I think my parents were, um, excited for me. I know that they missed me. This definitely wasn't in any of our, um, plans. It, mm-hmm has been very hard to be away from family, especially, um, my sister had a baby this year and because my husband and my brother-in-law are so close, like there's been a, a lot of just kind of, I guess, like mourning that, you know, like sitcom life of everyone being together and seeing each other for dinner and being close to each other and having that, um, you know, physical closeness has been something that I really had to struggle with and, and mourn a little bit in this lifestyle. But, um, I think my parents are probably think of this as more an adventure for me than even I do for myself. They probably have a more positive perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I always feel like family back home sees it as more grand and perhaps more dramatic than it feels on a pretty regular basis. Like the day they come home from deployment is one day. The rest of them are pretty regular, you know, (laughs) they're not all the movie scene, but what do you feel like were some of those biggest challenges at the beginning when it came to, I know you said you talked about sort of what it would look like, but when you really had to acclimate to that military spouse life, what were some of the biggest challenges for you there? Definitely being what I call like functionally single because I grew up with a lot of um, like friends. You know, I have a goddaughter whose mother was like a childhood friend of mine. My sister and I are super close. So I felt like I spent all of my time with my husband in one bucket and then the rest of my life in another bucket when we were dating long distance. And then, you know, I would go out to dinner with all my married friends and I was in a relationship, but I would be alone. And now that we're married, it's even... Um, stranger, because most of the time, if I go home, it's because my husband's traveling. So it's an opportunity to go home. So I'm going to mm-hmm. go home without him. And it's honestly, it's like a constant just practice of gratitude and contentment to like be happy when I'm with him and not miss my family. And then when I'm with my family, be content and appreciate that time and not focus on the fact that he's not there. I just really wish. That's like my longing is just for everyone to be together in the same place. And I feel like that happens, you know, once a year. (laughs) So that's definitely been um, the hardest, the hardest part, which I think is kind of tangential to being homesick. I am very close to my family and not, you know, not everybody is going to have the same, the same struggle of homesickness. But I feel like it's something that is difficult to talk about in the military community because it contradicts that ideal that the military community is your family and that it is enough. That's sort of the, that's the ideal, right? Like if the military community is, is enough and, and, and can operate as your family, then, 
you know, you're more likely to stay in for 20 years and you're more likely to, you know, really be on board with the life. So I feel like talking about, you know, homesickness and just the struggle that you have to, you know, really feel rooted in the place that you are is, is a little bit of a, of a difficult one to talk about. And also I think that the military life, a lot of people get into it because they want to travel or they want to get outside of their hometown. And so this lifestyle sort of precludes people like me from some ex- to some extent, because a lot of spouses are eager to go see the world and to, you know, get some distance from wherever they came from. So I don't want to sound super negative here, but, you know, not everyone is maybe suited for the military life, even though they're in it. And, you know, sometimes I feel a little bit just like guilty about that because it's hard for me still to, to reconcile life at home versus life where I am. Mm -hmm. I think that's so well put. And I think that there's a part of just about every single one of us that is not well suited for this in one way or another. And I think that's where that stereotype of military spouse comes from whatever people conjure up as the person who would be well suited to do this. And which is also, I think, it, a persona that most of us don't feel like we fit into. And it's largely because of those, you know, whatever it is, it's not even always homesickness, but something about you that's mm-hmm. like, you know, I think another example, to be honest with you, is that it would probably make bode well for any of us who didn't care to further their education, you know, from a logistical perspective, mm-hmm. like that would probably make things easier smoother. So I think there's a lot of things like that. And I think that you also brought up a really good point about the homesickness when you talked about how there is so much talk about your military family and these people within the military becoming your family. And I am very fortunate to have experienced that before, but I also can absolutely see how, and, and we haven't had that at every base. We haven't had that as a constant, but I can see how, if you are if you're somewhere and you don't have that, that sort of, you know, creating an even, you know, even more of an emphasis on how much you're missing your own family and perhaps even how much feeling less like you fit in when the reality is that like not everybody has that all the time and not everybody has, you know, the, the friend who's going to just walk through the door and pour a glass of wine. Like that's a, Mm -hmm. that's a unique thing to have. And I think that it's extremely valued. And I think that this lifestyle puts us in positions to have more of that, you know, because the, you know, your family of origin is kind of taken away from you logistically speaking. But I think that that's really poignant because even whether you have that or not, like I still miss my family like crazy too. And sometimes I'm like, it's such a bummer. Cause like you said, like my husband's never home with me and he and I are from the same hometown. My family knows him. Like they love him. They adore him. But it's like, I feel like in the last 10 years, they've spent like four weeks with him, you know, <laughs> just when you, when you add it all up and that kind of thing is just, it stinks because I don't think there are many other scenarios where if you want to be near your family, you, you aren't one doing it without your spouse and two doing it as rarely as we often are. I think that that's, I think that's great that you bring that up. And I definitely don't think that that's a, 
I don't think that that's something that you, that you feel alone, you know, that you're the only one feeling, but that it is not spoken of nearly as much as I think people really experience it. Other than, you know, the, the challenge of homesickness, have there been any other like lessons that you've kind of had to learn as a military spouse or things that you've had to adapt to or adjust to or anything like that? I think the most interesting one, and this is more um, just, I think, based on my husband's personality too, but he's um, very private, which is why I haven't said his name and he's not on social media and he has a very clean divide between work and life, just Mm -hmm. in the way that he is. That's just like his natural um, state of being. So, you know, we've very, both of us sometimes, you know, struggle with the whole Um, idea of his job being such a part of both of our identities, um, because it's very public, you know, you're, when you're in the military, your salary is public, you know, where you live is public, you know, people know so many things about you. And, you know, when you're friends with other spouses, then their husbands know many, so many things about each other. And, And it's a very, difficult I have found to sort of separate his job from my friendships or relationships with the military spouses not even just like the ones that I have gotten to know well on base but just like random people will ask me questions about his career or his opinion I'm like this isn't I don't know I don't know or I Mm -hmm. mean I do know but this isn't public, right? <laughs> you know, this isn't public information. You can't, you can't just ask me this. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it makes me come across as being very like uninterested in military life, which isn't necessarily true because I am a key spouse and I am the lead for the military spouse professional network here. And I am very invested and I do try as much as possible to jump in when I can, because it does fight against um, the homesickness and the feeling kind of unrooted to jump in. So it's not coming from a place of, oh, I don't want to get involved as much as it's coming from a place of, I want to be involved with the spouses and with that community um, for myself and with what I have to offer. And I don't want to talk about um, my husband's mission or who he flew with or who he's instructing or what he thinks of some policy change that happened. And that makes me kind of feel uncomfortable because I also think that it's his career and that's a very sensitive personal thing. And I, you know, I don't want to be like gossipy about something that he said, and then that's going to, you know, somehow negatively affect him. So that's Mm -hmm. a strange balance that I didn't really understand even as being something I would have to navigate until I kind of was like already in the middle of it. And I was like, wow, this is... (laughs) There's a lot of information here that everybody knows about each other. And this is weird. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that's so true. And there's some of it that I've had to kind of pull myself back from too, because like you said, we know because it's all the same, like when you're in, especially some of like the earlier things when we're all in like a certain training course or whatever. So everyone's like the same rank too. So like you said, it's like, we all know each other's salaries. We all know the choices each of us are choosing between like, what basis do you want, et cetera. So it's like, we're they, all of these different variables are the exact same, but then we're choosing different paths within them. And like, when I was like a very young spouse, I really, like, it took me a bit to realize like, you have to stop caring about what other people are doing. Like 
yes, they have the same information and the same means and the same decisions to make, but their dynamic is entirely different. And that kind of stuff is, it's tricky. Like where, like in what other workplace is everyone making the same amount and doing the same thing and their spouses know, I don't know. I, I agree with you. And it's, it's a fine line. And there's some, in my opinion, there's some like leaning into it that really can help when it comes to things that, like you said, like we know we're going to move. Let's lean into it and enjoy the adventure. But also some lines that have to exist in order to, like you said, keep it as a job and keep yourselves as equals at home and all that kind of thing. That there's not one, one career, one, um, you know, one role that's taking precedence over the other one, even though, like you said, at the end of the day, some of the logistics, yes, but, (laughs) but you can do your best to maintain what you can. What have been some of the more rewarding parts of this, this lifestyle and the whole military spouse experience? I think the most, this is such a lame answer, but I think the most rewarding thing for me is that it's rewarding for my husband because he picked it. He finds joy in it. You know, he went to college and majored in something different and then did ROTC and then became a pilot. Like, I don't think that's what he wanted to do when he was like 15 years old. I don't, I don't, I really should know this about him. Um, but I mean, he, you know, he, he studied international relations and that's something that he's very interested in and government and stuff. And then he, you know, started flying planes. So this is obviously something that he is really good at. And honestly, it's amazing to me because aviation makes no sense and it shouldn't work. So, wow. Um, (laughs) So I think just seeing him be good at his job is great. Also, as someone who didn't know anything um, about the military and I just grew up and like to me, war was just always yucky. So I just stayed away from it kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, not... um, not really aware of it, not really unaware of it, just sort of, you know, purposefully ignorant, which now that I say it sounds really bad. Um, no, I totally understand. I mean, it, it wasn't yeah. in my, um, my radar too much to pay, you know, like super close attention to what the military was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think learning that has been rewarding and seeing what he does. And when he does something that is, you know, quote unquote heroic or, you know, noble, um, you know, I can, I can be proud of him. And I think that's something that is very, is very interesting and, um, a little bit not, not different, but, you know, I think that like I do good work in the world, but I don't think that what I'm doing is necessarily heroic. So (laughs) I think for me, what's rewarding is just, um, seeing what he's doing and learning more about, um, why he loves it and, um, the benefit that it has, um, to the world. So. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I know that's something I tell my husband too, that I'm like, if you ever stop enjoying this better, tell me (laughs) because we don't have to necessarily live in these places if you don't want to be doing this anymore. But I agree with you. And that's something that I admire about so many of the people who do this, because I think that you have to have a certain degree of passion for it because it's, it's not easy. And like you said, it's just kind of scary. Some of the stuff they do. So props to them, I guess. So if you could choose, 
and all other things being equal, would you choose the military spouse life? Okay. I'm going to splinter my answer in two. I would say that no, I would not have chosen the military spouse life. However, I think if I was not a military spouse, I don't think I necessarily would have left New York voluntarily. And I think it has been really good for me to move somewhere else and to like stretch like that. So if there was some way I could have had like a piece of this experience without the whole experience, I think that would have been great. But for me, it's just, maybe it's just like the length of it. Like in an ideal world, maybe I would do this for two years, but there's no such thing as being a military, you know, like you can't do this for two years, Um, especially, you know, when you're married to a pilot, they don't have like two or four year contracts. They have like 10 year contracts. You know, you're really, you're really in it. Um, And so I think that I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think I can go backwards because if my husband, if this is what my husband's going to do, then I wouldn't like go back in time and, and not marry him. So. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a complicated question. I don't think I have an answer. I I've heard you say it on the podcast before and I've literally like had no idea what I was going to say. So um, I guess, I don't know. I think that I am where I am right now. And when it comes time to decide whether we're going to keep doing it or not, then maybe that will be another conversation. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that it has stretched me and grown me and challenged me in a way that I know is good for me. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, it's kind of a dangerous question to really delve too far into it as a military spouse, because how many different, it, it feels like every year and a half at the least, there's some sort of new opportunity or thing to consider that I think if you tried to like really unravel that all the way back to whether or not you'd want to do this, it's like, that's just a slippery slope. And I think Mm -hmm. it's, there's some pretty heavy importance in, like you said, I am where I am right now. And, and just taking the, taking the learning from that that exists and making as, as best of it as you can. Well, like you said, when the time comes and you have to make the big decisions, that's when you can whip out all the pro con lists and everything. But the dream for the future is definitely like be back in your family. And, you know, my sister and I joke, we're going to like buy a mansion together and all live in the same house and be weird. Um, and, and that's still, that that is still like the dream. So I, I think that my mom always told me, because I, I very much want to have everything at the same time. And she was like, you cannot have everything at the same time. You can have everything at different times. I was like, yeah. okay, so I'm going to have military spouse life and non-military spouse life at different points in my life. And I think kind of remembering that this is not forever makes it more exciting now because I can jump in head first and do all the things and volunteer and, and try to commit to myself as much as possible because I know that there is still going to be something else, something different um, for me afterwards. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I really like looking at it that way, you know, to have everything at different times, because I feel like that, that already has kind of my own mind turning about, okay, what, if I think of everything I could ever want, what of that can I have right now? What of that do I have right now? And, and what about that? Can I perhaps not have later when I get this other thing? And so I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. And 
you know, we've talked about sort of similar versions of that before, but I love that perspective. I think that's very helpful and kind of helps keep, keep my own mind level. So, so thanks to your mom for that. (laughs) I was a very um, dramatic child uh, who always wanted everything at the same time. I wanted to be old and rich, but then also be a child forever and would cry when it was my birthday. So I was complicated. (laughs) So my mom really needed to uh, give me the harsh realities of the world. (laughs) Yeah. Patience is definitely not my strong suit, which my mother would also uh, reinforce. And my husband was in, I think he was in kindergarten, his mom could confirm, but, uh, and was crying because he didn't know what he, like, couldn't go to sleep at night because he didn't know what he wanted to do when he grew up. So I was like, go to bed, like, go to preschool. See, for tomorrow. someone like that, the military is perfect because yes. every day they tell you what you are. Exactly. And you get affirmation in that. So good for him. Exactly. And the fact that, you know, it's like, if you decide to do this thing, here's exactly like the um, amount of dollars that your income will shift at this time. And that like everything is as unpredictable as it is, it's all pretty regimented too. So I think he's, he's well suited for it, but okay. Moving to the rapid fire. You are safe because I am coming up with new ones soon, but you will have probably already heard these. So okay. first one is sweet or savory. Sweet, which is rarer. And I noticed that men don't eat dessert that much because I don't have a lot of girlfriends down here. And when I go out with my husband and his friends, no one ever wants to order dessert. And it makes me so sad. And sometimes I'll make them sit in a restaurant for another half hour while I eat a dessert by myself. Sweet. Oh, wait. That's every awesome. Day. You know what? Even when asking this question, the answer is usually savory. What kind of sweets? What's your favorite dessert? I just, I just like um, sweets. Like I'm also a sweet breakfast person. Like I'll do croissants, muffins, pancakes. Mm-hmm. Charleston. Yeah. So we're in Charleston and I've noticed one interesting thing with like moving and experiencing different cities is that like different places have different like dessert trends and pot de creme is really in right now. Like all the restaurants have pot de creme, which is basically fancy French chocolate pudding Mm. and it's really good. And if I'm at a restaurant and I see that on the menu, I'm going to make everyone sit there for another 20 minutes while I eat it. (laughs) I like it. What would be your theme song? See, you, you said I would be ready for this one, but I was not ready for this one. It's okay. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I do like classical music. Okay. I love Vivaldi's Spring. I listen okay. to that a lot when I work. I think like a peppy violin piece. Nice. Yeah. I feel like I was gonna say you said while well, you work, but that that suits sort of that cerebral side of you and the the studying higher education side. So it's a little a little cliche in that way, but also an excellent choice. I like uh, music when I work, but I struggle with like too many words. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's distracting to me. So I like um, a classical music or jazz or something. Right. Yeah. Because if I'm listening to it and it's got words, I need to like know what they're singing about and the storyline and what's happening to everybody. And so what's your favorite assignment been or your favorite place you've ever lived? I guess I'd just say. Definitely New York. I think it, I think a lot of people from New York think it's the greatest place in the whole world. So yeah, New York is the greatest place in the whole world. But <laughs> um, I did study in Germany when I was in college, and I do love Germany. Um, and my husband and I have talked sometimes, like how could we get to Germany? Maybe if that was something we'd want to do. It's not mm-hmm. super direct, but it's every now and then it's dangled, but it's like not quite there. So um, sure. that could be fun. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I was only there for like six weeks, but okay. um, I loved it. If mm-hmm. I could take my entire family to Germany with me, I would live in Germany. That's awesome. What is your favorite form of self-care? Sleeping. Um, I sleep a lot. I was just in New York with family over the past few weeks because my husband is deployed and I was with all my friends and family who have children. And I woke up at like 7 a.m. every day because that's what children do. And it was horrible. Um, <laughs> I like to sleep till 830 if I can. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is, I think if I get enough sleep, I am a much happier person. Yes. That is the single greatest recurring challenge of motherhood for me is sleep. There's never, ever, ever enough of it. Just not getting to choose. I think is the thing too. Like if I could, you know, and like my husband will be TDY and he's like, I woke up at six today and I don't know why. And it, angers me because he has the choice. And so one of us should be sleeping, but well, that is all the questions. So, okay. You did it. You did great. You did better than I did. So well done. (laughs) And then remind me, did I give you a heads up about the favorite quote? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Then when you're ready, if you will send us off with your favorite quote. Yes. So this is um, a little bit of a longer one, if that's okay. That's definitely okay. It's from um, Ralph Waldo Emerson from his essays in The Conduct of Life. And it's about, it's like two paragraphs. So I cut it down. But basically it says, who are you that you have no task to keep you at home? He that does not fill a place at home cannot abroad. You do not think you will find anything there which you have not seen at home. And let him go where he will. He can only find so much beauty and worth as he carries. Thanks again so much to Sarah for her time. And at the risk of getting on my own soapbox a little bit here, I really do hope that Sarah's message resonates with everyone when she talks about the realities that a lot of what impacts us on a daily basis is a lot more granular than what we focus on. And I am absolutely guilty of it too when it comes to getting completely caught up in the news cycle and politics and things on a grand federal level, which absolutely matter. But also keeping in mind that what really affects us, the school down the street, the transportation system, the way we treat our neighbor, whether or not they have the same resources that we do and whether or not they're okay. And so I hope that this just serves as a reminder to step back and look more closely, look more closely at our own daily lives, look at what we can control. I know as spouses, sometimes it feels like that's not anything, but it's there. It might be just learning who's in charge of our community. What kind of decisions are they making? Is there anything that we can do? Can we vote? Can we make our opinions known? Can we help someone? So I will step off my soapbox now. I thank you all so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Bye.